0: morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Romans, we'll be starting our study off this this morning from uh, from the first chapter of Romans. As you're turning yourself there, I would like to pose a question. The question would be, what is grace? I think if we were in a Bible class setting, I'm sure that more than one of you would probably answer that question, grace is unmerited favor. That's the kind of way we've learned to describe grace um, as, as we have grown, and especially if you spend any time in the church, kind of a, a canned response, an accurate response, but a canned response. Grace is unmerited favor. It's any gift that God has given us that we do not deserve. And that is absolutely true, but I want to dig deeper this morning into this idea and this topic of grace. What it is, is it just a present that you don't deserve? Or is it a power that we wield as we move down this path towards heaven? Talking about that, let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and read together in verse 5. Romans 1 verse 5, Paul speaking here says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Through him we have received grace. Now, there is some speculation and argument over who the we is in this, cha- in this verse. Paul says, through him, we have received grace. There's the "we"? It's, it's an inclusive statement. It includes more people than just Paul. Some scholars say, well, the we there infers that, that Paul is including himself with that, that office of apostleship. And He describes apostleship later on in the, in the same verse. So he's just including himself with the likes of Peter and Luke and John. Uh, or Peter and John and the other apostles that we read about in the New Testament. And so that's one possibility. The other possibility is that he's including himself with the the readers of the the letter. Um, The the Romans uh, who were faithful to God, that that they were the we that he describes there. Really, there's not a great significance as to which one this, this might belong to, which we he's talking about. The significance is what the we received and that is that they received grace. And he does something in this passage that very few other passages uh, do. Paul attributes a purpose to that. The purpose of receiving grace was for the obedience to the faith. He's telling them that grace has a purpose, and I'm afraid that all too often we turn grace into merely a talking point. In, in so doing, we remove the purpose that it has and we conveniently set it up in this nice little box that we can, we can gawk at it and we can argue about it and we can say what we think about it, but we never really use it. We never really have access to it because we spend so much time arguing over what it might mean and what it might do. What I want us to understand today is grace is a force. Grace is a force that God supplies. Um, several years ago, I made a couple trips to Clay City to the drag strip because of an ongoing argument that I had at work over the uh, ability of my my vehicle to, to drive fast. Ultimately, uh, I thought my truck was a lot better than everybody else did. So I made several trips to the drag strip, and I learned a handful of things. One, my truck was not nearly as bad as I thought it was, but... The other thing that I really noticed when I got there was several of these engines, several of these cars, when they get there, they go to a specialized gas station that is located at the drag strip, and they're not running just regular gas. They're running something called race fuel. Now, race fuel is this—it's—it's it, it's more potent than what you're going to buy at the Shell station. It's, it's got a higher octane than anything you see there. It's almost on par with alcohol, running alcohol through the engine. And most people, they think, you know, my vehicle runs well. I go to the gas station. I maybe even spring for the good stuff, and I put the 93 octane in, and, and, and my car runs well. And their vehicles would run well on what you buy at the gas station, but they don't run as they are designed to run without the special fuel. They don't run to their fuel full potential with this high-burning, high-octane fuel. And many likewise look at their lives today and they say, you know what, I'm doing well. Many people by the world standards look and say, look, things are going good, I'm a good person, but there is a power that is meant to move us. There is a power that is meant to fuel our obedience to the Father, and without it, we are sitting on the side of the highway, stalled out. And now Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 58, he says, be uh, be steadfast and immovable. But this isn't what he was describing, because as he goes on in that passage, he says that we are to be abounding in the works of the Lord. That word abounding means to be rich, means to be well supplied. And so Paul is telling them, when he says be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, really that's equivalent to him saying, be firm. Don't be shaken and let obedience overflow, just exude from your life to the Lord. Maybe after thinking about it like that, we might ask the question, that's, that's what I want. How do I do that? How do I let this, this sort of life that he talks about just overflow and pour out of my life? The first step in understanding this, the first step in living a life in this manner is to recognize that you cannot do it by yourself. You cannot do it on your own. We have to let grace fuel our service to God. And so let's begin by looking at a case study of grace this morning. I want you to to look back to the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we see an account of Israel. And Israel is an excellent case study for us to look at and for us to learn about the grace of God. Just a, a reminder to how we get to where we are. We're going to be reading in Numbers chapter 14. But to this point, what we have seen is God has heard the cries of his people while they are in bondage in Egypt. He sees their oppression. He sees that, that they are not living a life that he wants for them. And he has made a promise to them that he intends to keep. And so he brings his people out of captivity. And he... he brings them out to become this great nation and this great people that belong to him. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them across the wilderness, and they stand at the edge of the beautiful land of Canaan, and they send in 12 uh, ambassadors for, for the nation, 12 spies that are going to go in. They're going to look, seek it out, and then they're going to come back, and they're going to give a report. And as they go in, they see fantastic things. They see the, the, the true beauty of this land. They talk about it overflowing with milk and honey. It is a land rich and, 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 and full of, of abundant supply. In fact, they talk about the grape clusters that they find there that are so large that one man can't carry a cluster by himself. It requires two. But they also saw frightful things as they get there. They saw the, the, the descendants uh, of, of Anak. They saw giants. They saw mighty cities. And so these, these spies come back with a report. And as we remember, 10 of the spies return with this bad report. It turns the hearts of the people away from God. But that's not where the story ends. Because as you remember, the, the, because of this, they have to walk in the wilderness. They have to go back into the wilderness and they live for, for uh, 40 years. And, and in that time, all of this generation is going to die off. But that story doesn't even begin yet before they have another lesson they have to learn. If you look in Numbers chapter, 25, or Numbers chapter 14, verse 25, God gives Moses some instruction. He says, Now the Amalek's and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow, turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. God says, The people have turned their hearts against me. You're not going into the land. You're going back out to the wilderness. And then he goes on to tell them that because of their unfaithfulness, because they, they did not trust in him, that every man of this generation is going to die save Caleb and Joshua. We can read about that in verse 38. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. But start, starting in verse 39, I want us to, to read... And to see this sobering lesson that these people had to learn. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning, and they went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. You know the lesson that they had to learn before they marched back out into the wilderness? Before they marched out into what would be their punishment for their unfaithfulness? The lesson they needed to learn from God is you can't fight your way into God's promises. You can't fight your way in. You see, this people, they, they stand at the edge. They, they turn from God. They say, we can't do that. And God says, okay, because of your unfaithfulness, you're going back out into the wilderness. This generation's going to die. And they mourn for that. They were brokenhearted. They were sorrowful. And we might say, you know what? They repented because they said, no, we're going to march into the land and we're going to do what God called us to do in the first place. We're going to go in and we're going to take it. But their sorrow obviously wasn't based on the fact that they had displeased their God by disobedience. They had, as Paul would later describe talking to the Corinthians, worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. They were sorry because of what they were losing. They were sorry because of what they were not going to gain in Canaan. And that led them to do something that they had already done over and over again, and that was disobey God again. God had said, you're not going in. You need to go back out into the wilderness. You got lessons that you all need to learn. And they said, no, we will not go back out into the wilderness. We will try and fight our way into the land. Whenever I say, that God's grace is a power that moves us, we have to recognize that it always moves us in a parallel direction to God's will. We are always running right alongside His will if we are being powered and motivated by His grace. You can be busy doing all manner of things which seem good to you, which seem good to others, but if they are not in line with what God has called us to be and called us to do, they are futile. They are a waste of time, just as these Israelites marching into this land that, that were, was against the will of God. It wasn't going to profit them anything. But for many, instead of being busy with things that are, are good, many are busy with, with doing nothing. They're not busy at all. And maybe that's because they haven't learned the next lesson that the Israelites were in bad need of understanding, and that was the victory had already been won. The victory was already secured. It seems the main reason that Israel failed to enter in the promised land is because when they get there, they're focusing on the battle. And they're failing to see victory has already been promised to them. In Numbers chapter 20, we see the, the second time that the Israelites are, are uh, getting ready to approach the promised land. They're in the wilderness now. This is that, that during that generation that's going to be dying off in the wilderness. And, and they're complaining, as has become their habit, about the fact that they don't have food and they don't have water and you've just brought us out here to die. And, and Moses obviously is, is stressed out by this. You can tell through the reading that, that he is tired of, of dealing with these same complaints over and over again. And God says, go and speak to the rock and I'll bring forth water. And so Moses goes and he takes his rod and he strikes the rock and water comes forth. Now notice what God says as he as he rebukes Moses and Aaron for this in verse 12 Numbers 20:12 The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them God does a couple things in his rebuke of Moses one He rebukes Moses. He tells Moses, what you have done is wrong. There's going to be punishment for what you've done. But he also reveals something about his nature and about his grace. He said, the land that you all turned away from, the land that you're heading towards now, is a land that already belongs to you. It has already been given to you by the God of heaven. Now, if the God of heaven, the God of all creation, who spoke the land into existence says, hey, the land is yours, something you can usually take to the bank. That's something you can you can rest your trust in. In verse 24, he's going to say it again. Aaron shall be gathered to his people for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Over and over again we're going to see that. And in Numbers 27 verse 12, before the death of Moses, God sends him up onto the mountain, Mount Erebim, and says, "Look at the land which I have given to the children of Israel. Again, this is that that second generation. The first generation has marched in the wilderness, has died off, and that second generation, God is saying, the land is yours. But I want us to see something about that first generation. In, In chapter 32, and in verses 7 through 9, chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, this is This is at a point where we're about to see a repeat of what that first generation did. They're standing at the edge, fixing to go in, and the the tribe of of Gad and Reuben and that half tribe of Manasseh, they say, Hey, we're just gonna stay on this side. You all go ahead and go in. You all can do it. We know you can do it. We're not going in. We're gonna stay over here. We're gonna set up shop over here. This is where we're gonna live. This side of the Jordan. We're not going into the land. And Moses is questioning them about that. And in verse 7, he says, Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they uh, saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. He tells these people again, over and over again, we're seeing this. Why are you going to discourage your brethren from going into the land that God has already given to them? The victory is already won. God has said, this is your land. Why are you going to discourage them from going in? But you notice what he also said in verse 9. He looks back to that first generation. He said, God had given the land to them too. The land was theirs. The victory was theirs. Their inheritance belonged to them. It was already in their account. He said, I've already given it to you. Over and over again, both generations, the victory is already won. You already own the land. so why did that first generation fail to obtain it? The reason they failed to obtain it is because they failed to go and take possession of it. In fact, that's where Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 23, they're instructed. It says, go take possession of the land that I have given you. The land that already belongs to you. Just go take it. So let's continue on in Numbers chapter 32. In verses 10 through 15, let's keep reading on in that discussion. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. And he swore an oath saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old, excuse me, and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun. For they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. Moses is warning them, the children of Israel here. He says, do you remember, do you really remember what happened when your fathers came to this point? They saw the land They saw how wonderful it was. God had given it to them, but they failed to go take possession of it. They failed to trust God and enter in. And you all are about to make the exact same mistake. And it's going to be upon your own heads that this whole generation is going to die again in the wilderness. He's saying, don't make the mistake of your fathers. Don't be all talk and no walk follow the Lord. You see, they hadn't made room in their lives for God's power to drive them into the land. They hadn't made room in their mind to see God's promises are already available to you. They are yours for the taking. And he's warning them, don't do the same thing. And in all of this, we see God's grace working through the Israelites in their conquest of Canaan. And some of them rejected it. Some of them rejected God's power to obey Him and His power to conquer the land. And when doing so, they were rejecting His grace. They hadn't done anything to deserve the land. They hadn't done anything to deserve the victory. And yet God was giving that to them. And we need to understand some things about grace today so that we don't reject it and lose our inheritance in heaven as well. And so one of the first things that we should figure out then is we aren't going to save ourselves, just like they weren't going to fight their way into God's promise. God has said, I'm giving you the land. They weren't going to fight their way in the way that those Israelites had in mind. When it comes to our own salvation, we aren't going to free ourselves from our sins by our own ability. Look over in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Paul says there, by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. All too often we act like those Israelites that said, you know what? I see Canaan. I see what I want and I'm going to force my way in. We're not going to force our way into heaven by overcoming sins on our own. It's just not going to happen. And I know that because Paul admits that it can't happen in his life. Look over in 1 Corinthians 15 and starting uh, uh, down at the beginning of the chapter, near verse 10, Paul is describing his relationship as an apostle. Now, he has been one born out of time, one who is unlikely or, or undeserving to have been chosen. But then look what he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet... Not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul recognized something about grace. He said, I tried hard. No doubt about it. I was working, but I didn't do it. It was God working in me. It was God's grace, God's power that is to be blamed for who I am today. Or I should say, be be given credit for. And so we should learn some things from this. If there is sin in our life, that we are struggling with, if there's sin that we are trying to overcome, whether it be anger or wrath, in, in, uh, you know, impatience, this lust, worry. We talked about worry in our Bible class this morning. If there's a sin that we're trying to overcome and, and we just continue to struggle with this over and over again, it may be because we have been rejecting God's grace, God's power to overcome sin in favor of our own strength, our own manhandling. And you know, we talked about fear of being found out about our sins or worrying about being found out about our sins. And that worry maybe produces in us this, this desire to somehow, I've got I've to get this under control. I've got to wrangle this into my submission. Paul is saying, that's not how I did it. It was hard work. But it was by the grace of God that I am who I am today. I want you to think about that statement. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying it's by the grace of God that I went from a murdering, hate-breathing, persecutor of the church into the humble, patient man that he is here. God's power transformed Paul. God's power can transform us as well because Jesus has already supplied our victory. Our victory over sin, our victory into salvation has been supplied by by Christ. Look over in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, we talked again in in Bible class this morning about Jesus. Jesus dealt with worry, anxiety, concerns as he stood uh, and and offered prayer for for his his followers and for all those who would follow after him that they would be unified. He was concerned about the, the direction that they would go in his absence. As he, as he stood in the garden, worried about the, the coming uh, persecution that he was going to have to, to experience, and he, he prays to God. And he says, he goes as far as say, please, if there's a way, let this pass from me. Jesus experienced the same temptations that we experience, yet the Hebrew author says was without sin. Jesus, by his example and by his current position, gives us power over top of sin. You notice how that, that verse ended, in verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Jesus is that high priest whose, whose position now puts Him at the right hand of God to, to speak to Him, to take our prayers and to speak them to the Father on our behalf, to relay to Him what we are experiencing and what we are needing. And He says that throne in which we are approaching is a throne of grace, a throne of God's power to be transformed in our lives to be made more like the image of His Son. And when we get over to Hebrews chapter 9, we see that it doesn't stop there with just the power over sin. It says that it goes on into our victory in salvation. In Hebrews 9 verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of His creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered in the most holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Wants to think about that last phrase there. Obtained eternal redemption. That's not a future tense. I'm not saying he is obtaining future redemption. It's not even the present tense that he obtains now. He obtained past tense already happened, already done He has went and He has secured our victory. Just as He had already given the land to the Israelites, He has already made available to you your salvation. It is yours by right. And we have to come to understand that. That the power uh, of the grace of the Father says our salvation is already there. It's already ours. We already have it. But that brings up one last point. Just like those Israelites, we have to go take possession of it. We have to take possession of our salvation. I want you to look over in Philippians chapter 2 with me. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the work of a Christian, about working. And he says in verse 12, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He ties working out your own salvation with fear and trembling back to obedience in this passage, but he's not done speaking. In verse 13, he continues this sentence, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He tells them regarding their, their, their obedience that has been in His presence now as He is leaving or is, in, is not with them anymore. He says, you continue that obedience. You continue working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then He says the same thing that we've been noticing about grace. It's God. God is the one who's working in you. We can understand now why we would read in passages like Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace it's not a work so that we can boast. If I do great things, Paul did great things. And he said even said, look, I worked really, really hard. But it wasn't me. It wasn't to my credit, to my glory. It was done only by the grace, the power that God gives me. And here he tells them at the end of this verse. You go and, and you behave as be, be blameless and harmless children of God. In the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. Paul almost identically mimics the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2 in verse 40, which says, with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Your translation might say, save yourself from this perverse generation. Paul and Peter are speaking the same exact thing. God's grace brought us salvation. And God's grace is the power to us towards obedience. And over and over again, the the holy apostles are saying, those of you who want heaven, those of you who want that inheritance that already belongs to you, go take it. Go possess it. And so as we wrap this up this morning, I want you to ask yourself, What have I been doing with God's grace? Maybe I've been one that admires it. Maybe I've been one that likes to talk about it, likes to discuss and argue the the points about whether or not we are saved by grace or not. But am I using it? Am I allowing it to flow through my, my life and to motivate me and to fuel my obedience? Or am I rejecting its power? It is true If we will remember that we have a high priest. Jesus has made an avenue for us to go to that uh, throne of grace and to request the grace that we need in our time of help. We think of passages like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. We should understand more, more vividly what Paul is saying there when he says, by Christ I am strengthened. By Christ all things are possible. We can't do this on our own. We won't do this on our own. But God has given us the ability through, through understanding his power, through trusting in his power, through having faith that he will supply the victory if we will just allow him to work in our lives. That begins in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Peter, again, encouraging them to save themselves from this crooked generation. He says, Those who received his word were baptized. Will you receive the word today? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us each and every one of us has done something sinful in our lives. Something that has separated us from our God, brought about death in a spiritual sense. But John 3.16 says, God still loves you. Despite what you have done, despite the things that were going on in the world, God said, I will send my son whom I love, my only son, so that he might die for your sins. So that he might stand in your place so that you will not perish but that you will have eternal life. And when his son got here, aside from the many wonderful things that he did, he said in Matthew 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that doesn't believe will be condemned. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the high priest that opens you up? to the power that God supplies in your life, to walk in obedience to Him, to obtain the inheritance that He offers. If so, then we need to turn our lives to Him. We need to turn away from trying to do things on our own ability and our own power and turn to Him as our Master. Turn to Him as our Savior and our Lord. We need to confess every day in our lives by the things that we say and the things that we do that we're not operating on our own ability. We're operating on the power that God gives us because He is our Master. We need to share in His death by being baptized so that we might receive forgiveness of our sins. I hope that we will pray going forward into this year. I hope that we will pray that God opens our eyes to the power that He supplies to us. That God opens our eyes to see His grace in our life and that we will seek that grace. And if that's something that you desire to do this morning, we would like to assist you in that. If so, won't you please come forward and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.